0: Practical wisdom from the first leader of the Christian Church in Jerusalem. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we study James and how to put our faith into action. We are in James chapter 1, and we're still trying to get through the end of James chapter 1. And yesterday, uh, we talked about how we shouldn't just be people who listen to the Word of God, but we actually do the Word of God. That periodically that we look at ourselves in the mirror and what it means to look in the mirror is to look deeply into God's law and how he wants us to live our life. And then not just intellectually think about it, but actually follow. And we talked a little bit about how this is the the way of life. This is the way that we are created, that God created us a certain way and we are living, we're living the full, abundant, whole life that God has us. For us, when we don't just hear His words, but we actually put them into practice by loving other people, so that's what we talked about at uh, our last episode, I think on Friday. And so um, today we're going to continue on that theme, and let's just take a look at verse 26. Those who consider themselves religious and you do not, and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. So, coming out of not only uh, hearing the Word of God, but doing the Word of God, then James says, and if you're going to consider yourself to be a religious person, uh, make sure that you keep a tight rein on your tongue. Now, a couple things about this. First of all, the the term religion may bristle with a lot of people. Uh, it certainly does with me, because religion is a word, that has a lot of baggage associated with it. If you talk to anybody who is a follower of Jesus Christ, they typically, a lot of people don't like the fact that we use the word religion. That Christianity is not a religion. Uh, One of the things that you will hear about is that Christianity is a relationship. It's a relationship with Jesus. And the reason why we bristle at the word religion is because it brings up connotations of religion is typically, when you follow a religion, typically it means that you must do number one, number two, number three. I always call it the religion of XYZ. That basically, if you're going to be a follower of a religion, here's all the rules that the religion sets down, and you must follow those rules. And for Christianity, we know that Jesus fulfilled the law and so that the rules were fulfilled by him. So we don't necessarily, as Christians, have rules to follow because Jesus has fulfilled all the rules to follow. Through his grace, mercy, and love, we are redeemed, we are saved, we are, we are Christians because of what he does and not anything that we do. And that's one of the reasons why James has a diff- why why Luther didn't like James is because it seems like in the book of James even here in chapter 1 that it's back to the rules again. You got to follow the rules. And yet Jesus did talk about rules, if you remember. People came up to Jesus and they said, "What must I do to be saved?" And Jesus said, "Among other things, love God, love your neighbor." That's kind of a rule. Actually, it is the rule, if you want, or the two rules. Love God, kind of a vertical relationship, love God, and a horizontal relationship, love your neighbor, love the world around you. And my favorite story or the one that really excites me or energizes me about loving your neighbor is the story about the Good Samaritan. So there's definitely a rule that Jesus has that you could say is part of the religion, which is to love God, love your neighbor. But Christians don't like that. They like talking about how Christianity is more a relationship. We want to get, you'll talk to many Christians and they want to get away from the word religion. And yet we can't really because Christianity is a religion. It's classified as one. It's, it's in the genre of religions. If you talk about world religions around the world, Christians would get upset if we were not included in that categorization of religion. So, at some level, we are religion. Now, what did Jesus talk about? Jesus talked about something totally different. When Jesus came, Mark 1:15, he said, The time has come. Uh, repent and believe. Uh, the kingdom is near. So, Jesus talked about the kingdom. Which is basically another way of thinking about religion or relationship, which is that Jesus came to buy and purchase our lives and bring us out of the basement as servants uh, to the honored position of being a son or a daughter or a member of the royal family in the kingdom. And we have all rights and privileges thereof because we're royal, we're royalty. That's how Jesus talked about it. He didn't necessarily talk about religion. He talked about kingdom and that how we're in the kingdom. And I like that. And as a matter of fact, that type of language resonates deeply with me and resonates deeply with our congregation too, that we're in the kingdom. But we are also in, in a broad sense, we are in the religion of, of Christianity. So while that word bristles against us, we can forgive James because he was writing very early on and he didn't know really how to categorize Christianity. Nobody did, and so he in this particular passage, he calls it religious or religion. And he's talking to Jews who are exiled, and he says, if you wanna consider yourself to be religious, then what do you need to do? You need to keep a tight rein on your tongue and don't deceive yourself. I remember years ago, I was studying the book of James as a class, a Greek class. It was a, it was a sophomore level Greek class at Denver Seminary. When I lived in Denver, I started my seminary education at Denver Seminary. Uh, I was thinking about learning all the stuff, the MDiv stuff, But uh, I didn't necessarily want to pick up my family and move them to St. Louis. I was more just intellectually curious about some of the classes that they taught as part of the Masters of Divinity program. And so I took Greek and Hebrew, and then I took second-level Greek. And in that class, we studied the book of James. And I was assigned this passage that if you want to be religious or consider yourself religious, you have to keep a tight rein in your tongue. And I remember that this whole idea of keeping a tight rein on the tongue, the language used here is that of a bit in a horse's mouth. And that that keeping a tight rein on the tongue has allusions to a bit in a horse's mouth. And I remember Writing a paper, I think, or preaching on this, I can't remember one of them about how, if you think about the bit of a horse, what is the bit of a horse? It's a very important piece that it goes in the mouth, and then the reins are so you know are attached to the bit. But if you pull the rein to the right, the the horse moves to the right. If you pull the rein to the left, the horse moves to the left, and. If you want to control your body, if you want to have complete control over your body of what your body's going to do and your mind is going to do, then you have to keep a tight rein on the tongue. The tongue is a very, very powerful force. Now, obviously, it's not your tongue itself. It's the words that come out of your mouth. It's, so this tongue is basically an illusion uh or an indication of, the, of how you should live your life. So basically, the words that come out of your mouth need to be words that guide and direct your life. And you have to keep a tight rein on the words that come out of your mouth. Otherwise, it is worthless. And it's following along with, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then don't just think about it. Don't have an intellectual thinking sensation about Christianity But do the things that Jesus says. And then right along here, James is saying, and also say the things that Jesus says you should say. And what does Jesus say? If you look at Jesus and how he lived his life, he used his words to love the world around him. He served, but he also used words to bring peace, to bring healing, to bring hope to bring love, to bring joy. All those things Jesus did, there is in Christianity, as you know, Bibles that take the words of Jesus and they highlight them red, And basically, we should look at what Jesus said and we should say those types of words to the world around us. Words of healing, words of hope. Jesus going to the beggar in the street and saying, what can I do for you? And he says, please heal me. And Jesus speaks words and the healing happens. Or even at the beginning of creation where Jesus speaks and the universe is created. Words are powerful, my friends. And part of being a follower of Jesus Christ in the kingdom, or dare I say, being religious in Christianity is about having words that speak into this world, speak words of redemption, hope, healing, love into this world and then following through with that. That is part of being a follower of Jesus Christ, being in the kingdom. And words are, you know words are powerful. You know when you have said something to someone that destroyed them. You know when you've said something to someone that broke off a relationship with somebody. You know when you've said something to someone that healed them. So you know the power of words. You, you know the incredible power of words. Part of being a follower of Jesus is controlling those words, having more times when we heal than destroy. But we're never gonna do it perfectly. There will be times in our life when we say something and we wish we could take it back. But once it's out there, once you said those words, you can't take it back. It's not like you can, uh, there was a story. uh, There's a show that Hollywood put out several years ago called Men in Black, right? And um, they would go in and clean up an alien world or aliens in the world. And then they had this little doohickey that they'd press the button and it would flash a light. And everybody would forget that whole entire episode, right? It would do a mind erase for the last five minutes or 10 minutes or whatever based upon what setting you have on that device. And I'm sure that there are many of you wish you had that device that you could just put it to negative five minutes and press the button and it would go back and take away those words, those hurtful words that you said. But we don't have a device like that. Once they come out of our mouth, they're out. And just like a forest fire, sometimes a spark gets out of control and you can't control it. And same thing with words. Sometimes we say words that do not heal, do not help, because we're, we're human. And no matter how hard we try, no matter how much we want to live our life for Jesus and be his words of healing in the world, there are going to be times when we mess up. And the great news is, is he doesn't kick us out of the kingdom. He doesn't strip us of our honor of being part of the royal family. He picks us up and cleans us off and, and forgives us and sends us out into the battlefield again to continue to have words of healing. That's just the human condition. But what James is saying is be very careful about the words that you say. I think the older we get, the more we realize how powerful words are. And so we are more careful. Some people have a personality where they will be very careful with their words Some people have a personality where they'll be very quick with their words, and then they wish that they hadn't said those words. And we're all different in this world. We are all different, all created differently. What James says is just be very careful. The words that you say, be very careful. Keep a tight rein on them. Because if you don't, then everything else about you, what you do, your actions, your uh, your your status in the kingdom, all of that stuff is is uh, worthless. I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul who wrote in 1 Corinthians. He said, even though I, uh, I speak words, uh, though I have the words of men and of angels, if I don't have love, then I am nothing. And this is similar. The words that you have should have love in them. Otherwise, everything else you do in life is going to be meaningless. So be careful with your words. That's what he's saying here. So that's verse 26. I think we'll move on to verse 27. Verse 27 says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I'll say that again. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted in the world. So uh, this is definitely something that would have resonated with the readers of James. Because if you lived in that culture, if you were not tied into a family that had a strong head of household, then you were disenfranchised that's a big word you were kind of set you you were forgotten by society it was easy for society to forget you now obviously if you have kids and you're a an, a widow and you have kids the kids will take care of you no question about it that was part of society or if you were part of a larger family that looked after each other, then they would look after the widows and the orphans too. If you were part of a community, if you were part of a f- strong family and the husband died or, or the parents died and left somebody a widow or, or had kids and you were part of a family that looked after you, then, then all was well. But there were, in the early church at this time, widows who lost their husbands and maybe their kids died. Remember, we have, if you have five kids today, probably five will survive into adulthood. But back then, in the early church, in the first century, if you had five kids, you might have two to survive into adulthood. If you had all five survive into adulthood, you were a blessed person. So think about Jacob and his sons. He had 12 sons, and they all survived uh, into adulthood. That was just, and they were male. That is like the blessing of all blessings, to have 12 male sons who all survive into adulthood is a huge blessing. But that was very, very, very uncommon. Most of the time, the wife could die in childhood, uh, in childbearing, or the kids could die in childbearing, or an early infant disease, particularly if you lived in a large city where the spread of the disease happened quite a bit. You just, you just, if you had five, you were very, very blessed if you had two to survive into, to, into adulthood. But it is also possible that you as a woman could have a husband and have five or six children and the husband dies and all the children die. And so now the, there's this woman who's a, a widow and she has nobody to take care of her for whatever reason. Or you might have a situation where the mom and the dad both die and then you have these kids who are now orphaned and nobody can take them in. And so that was something that happened all the time. And the church was very, very, very much involved in finding places for these widows and orphans to get what they needed. And we know that that happened. In Acts 6, we're told that The distribution of food and resources to the widows and orphans was not being done equitably. That the Grecian women, the Grecian widows, didn't feel like they were getting as much resources as the Jewish widows. That there was favoritism by the church to favor the Jewish widows over the Greek widows. And you can't blame the apostles because they're also doing everything else to establish this new thing called the church. And so they were overlooking that. So what they did was they appointed some men to take over the distribution of food to, the, to these widows. And then it, it was taken care of. So we know that this type of thing happened. And so that's what, that's what James is talking about. But when he, there are a lot of things a church can do. There are a lot of programs that a church can do, and in the early church, and I kind of see this as an early church thing, what he says is that the highest calling that anybody who is a follower of Jesus Christ can have is to look after orphans and widows in their distress. I think that's, that is a great calling. Now, is that an effective calling today? Should we look after orphans and widows in their distress? Well, the answer, of course, is yes, always. And there are a lot of widows and orphans out there. And do we do a very good job at this? I don't know. We, we have so many programs as a country to look after widows and orphans that we almost wash our hands of it and say, well, some other governmental organization is going to look after these people. And yet, not every, and it's not really the fault of the government, it's just that if it becomes overwhelming, they just don't have the resources or the people power or the skill set to be involved in everybody's life. Because really this kind of stuff is best done out of a relationship where you can deeply know the people in these situations and help them at a level that's going to help them and not destroy them and it requires an incredible amount of resources and it inc- it involves incredible amount of time it inc- involves incredible amount of passion and it and because of that i think it's so easy to just turn it over to some agency and say you deal with it and if the agency was doing a great job that would be great but it has been my experience now over the last four or five years that not every agency does a great job in this. And it has nothing to do with the people in the agency who have a heart and a passion for this sort of work. It's just that, for one, it becomes overwhelming that the agency gets overwhelmed by it. Two, the agency gets defunded so they don't have a lot of resources. And three, and probably the hardest part, is that if you are a person who is hired by an agency to do this type of work, at some point you have to start distancing yourself from the work and look at it almost clinical level so that it doesn't destroy you. It's like the uh, person who works in a funeral home. Jennifer's grandmother, her father, I believe was a funeral home director, and they lived in the funeral home. Can you imagine that? So Jennifer's grandmother, would have dead bodies in the parlor level of the funeral home, and they lived upstairs and maybe in the back or whatever like that. That's that's very, very common occurrence because that's how we, it's a totally different story, but that's how we built the United States is by living in the upper floors and having the business on the lower floors. So you don't have one mortgage, but you'd have a business. We don't follow that model, unfortunately, anymore because it was a great model. But that's that's how people did things back then. Is that they would live in the upper floor and have dead bodies in the older floor. If they in the younger, in the lower floor, if they were funeral home directors. But if you know anybody who's a funeral home director, they almost have to create an element of humor uh, around it just to survive because it is so difficult. You're dealing with people in their darkest hour, and so they have to at some level, pull back and disassociate their emotions from it, otherwise it could overwhelm them and add a little humor into it. And so the the governmental agency at some level has to pull back their emotions just so that they can get the work done. Well, and I don't know how many cases that they, they look after, but at some point it's just overwhelming. And wouldn't it be awesome if every church in the United States relieved these agencies of the the com, not the command but the responsibility of being the first person defender of the widows and orphans, that church has said this is really something that we've been called by Jesus to do. So we'll do this. We'll look after, and then assigned one or two people. I mean, made it made it more one on one relationship and it can't be just the pastor the pastor can only you know see so many widows and orphans but but a church could look after many and create those relationships and build them up and create an extended family for the widow, widows and orphans and that really is one of the highest callings according to James of the church and i've often thought whenever i read this it convicts me a little bit because i'm i'm I've got a million things on my plate, right? What? How do I? How do I respond to this? But as a church, as a congregation, we could do this, and I, that's why I'm so impressed by uh, my friend who who is here this weekend, who's um, in this ministry in Cambodia, because he saw the orphans in distress in Battambang, and he went out and did something about it, and that's. According to James, that is pure and faultless religion. That is pure and faultless following Jesus. That is a great thing. <sighs> and we don't do this very well either. But Jesus doesn't kick us out of the kingdom. He brushes it off, dusts it, and he says, this is, this is something you need to look at. I'm convicting you on this. And I know that you think it's covered, but it isn't necessarily covered at all. Governments don't necessarily do a good job at this. Agencies don't do a good job at this. Even though the people are great, the systems sometimes break down. And when systems break down, that is certainly a time when the church needs to step up its game and help. Because each widow and each orphan is a life that Jesus loves immensely, powerfully. And we can show that love. All right, I think I'll close it there. So um, would you join me in prayer? Gracious God, thank you for this time together. These words, Lord, they convict us. So help us to figure out how they can motivate us to be your hands and feet in the world around us. Until we meet again, keep us in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.